Good morning. My name is Andres. I am one of the pastors here at Christ the King, and it's so good uh, to be able to join you, even if it is virtually, for a few moments. Uh, whatever time and whatever day of the week you maybe end up watching uh, this, or if you're in our live stream as well, welcome. Really grateful that you um, are joining us through this medium uh, this morning, this Sunday. Uh, the text this morning, out of which we'll be looking at uh, God's Word, is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. It's a very short passage. It's only four verses uh, in, in, in this story, in this narrative, but I trust that it's got a, a great, really good, and exciting message. And so we'll be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. It should be on there uh, for you on the screen. This is uh, what it says. And they, this is the people or parents more specifically, were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one who cares and provides for your people. And in this text, we see this amazing truth that you care for even the smallest among us, the most vulnerable maybe even the weakest as well. And so we come to you this morning. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, that we would be encouraged and inspired, but also challenged for the ways where in our own lives, maybe we don't live according to the example and the standards that you set in place. And through all of this, would your name be magnified and glorified both in and through our lives. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now about uh, 18 or 20 months ago, <clears throat> my family and I uh, were moving apartments, and so I decided to hire a moving company. Uh, moving day, uh, day came, and two guys showed up, and as they started moving the stuff, I began to strike a conversation with them, and they asked me what I did. So I told them that I worked at a church, and one of them, a young-looking guy uh, named Michael, said, you know, I've been praying recently uh, that I would find a church. <clears throat> and I said, that's awesome. Um, how about I take you out for lunch or coffee and, you know, we can talk. You can tell me a little bit more. And he said, well, I don't have a car. And so I said, well, don't worry about it. I can pick you up. And so we exchanged numbers. He texted me his address. And the following week, I took him out for lunch and he started sharing his story. Michael uh, had just gotten out of prison after seven years, uh, two weeks prior. And that found this moving company uh, as a place to work that was actually started by one of his former uh, inmates. He was from Corpus, uh, grew up a normal life until he made some mistakes that cost him his freedom. He was now living in this gateway house with other former inmates, trying to recreate himself and his life. Now, I started inviting him here uh, to church. He started coming, inviting a few of his other roommates, and I'd meet with them throughout the week. We'd do Bible studies, go out to lunch. They got to know my wife and kids, and it developed and evolved into this really sweet friendship. Now, I learned a lot from Michael. 
concerning life and spirituality. I learned a lot from him about suffering, uh, about what it looks like to depend on God. I learned about brokenness and sin and injustice, about finding joy in the midst of darkness. Now, about six months later, uh, him and several of other uh, roommates ended up moving back home. And I, I was actually talking to Michael this week, and he's doing great. Now, I'm not sure I expected to learn so much about God and his work from Michael. And yet I do think that I'm a better person and, and a better pastor because I found Jesus in the most unexpected of people and places. Where do you go to or who do you go to to look for God? You know, here's the thing. We all have this need uh, for God to be present in small, ordinary places. Because small and ordinary actually defines our everyday. I, I don't know about you, but especially during the season of COVID, days just seem to pass me by. And if I'm not paying attention, I can miss God at work in the mundane, simple, and yes, insignificant people and places. When's the last time you saw Jesus as you walked your dog or as you sat in your favorite coffee shop? Is that even possible? Well, what this passage teaches us is that not only is it possible, but ultimately necessary as a follower of Jesus. The message for today is how we treat the small is a reflection of how we view Jesus and life in the kingdom. And the good news is that not only is Jesus found or at work in the small, but small and insignificant actually is an accurate description of much of his own life. So we'll look at today's passage uh, through three seemingly insignificant things. Uh, First, an insignificant people. Second, an insignificant kingdom. And third, an insignificant savior. So first, an insignificant people. Now by this point in the story, uh, Jesus had done a lot. Uh, He's gotten baptized, he was tempted, he selected 12 disciples, sent out 70 disciples, healed a lot of people, performed many miracles. He's been teaching and preaching a lot. And we just saw the transfiguration happen a few weeks ago. Now, we know from reading ahead in the narrative that he's in the last few months of his life. He's been telling his followers that he's going to die soon. And although they don't quite understand it, I mean, who would, who could, uh, they do sense and feel uh, the heaviness and the weight of what their teacher is telling them. And so Jesus doesn't have a lot of time left, and his followers know that he wants to be in Jerusalem by a certain date. Which brings us to this passage. You can understand why mommies and daddies bringing their babies for Jesus to touch would be pretty low on their priority list. And yet that's precisely what happens. Verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. 
Now, I know it's, it's difficult, but if you can, imagine this scenario. Jesus is walking along. Here's an exorcism. Here's a miracle. Here's a preaching. And here comes Mary with five-year-old Jude and three-year-old Abby wanting Jesus to bless them. Oh, Hannah notices. And so she brings three-month-old Rachel to also be blessed by Jesus. Then Daniel brings little Judith and Aaron to be touched. Now, parents bringing their children to be touched or blessed by a rabbi wasn't uncommon. It's fine, right? Well, the story says that as soon as that started happening, quote, the disciples rebuked them, the parents, but also maybe the children. The word rebuke could also be translated as they warned them or they sternly told them to go away, to shoo, right? So what's the big deal here? Well, in the first century, Jewish households were patriarchal, right? The men came first and had the most power and authority, then the women, and last women, and, or children and servants. So a child was, for all intents and purposes, basically on the same level as a household servant. Adults were seen as key members of society. Children were not to be heard, and their needs always came second. Now, what did the disciples and other people in the crowd think about babies and toddlers? Well, remember that as an oppressed group, they looked for people with power. So, of course, in their mind, children didn't have any power and therefore didn't have as much priority or value. Many from the crowd were Greeks who loved wisdom. And so, of course, in their mind, children didn't have much wisdom and therefore didn't have as much value. In fact, by Jesus' time, it's reported that the Romans had a trash heap right outside their front door beside many homes where they often would leave unwanted children. And if people wanted them, they would pick them up, but most often than not, they would raise them up to be gladiators or slaves. So we can begin to understand why it is that the disciples thought children were unworthy of their master's time. Certainly less important than whatever else he had to do. In fact, they were an intrusion and a drain of time and energy. They were an insignificant people. So, what's... Jesus' reaction to his disciples' care of his limited time. Second, an insignificant kingdom. Verse 14 continues. When Jesus saw this, what the disciples were doing, how they were reacting, their attitude, he was indignant. Other versions say he was angry or irate. It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus shows this much anger at his disciples. Verse 15 continues, Jesus said to the disciples, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Don't, don't prevent them. Don't withhold them. Don't forbid them. Don't get in their way because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Jesus is reframing 
his followers' attitude of what life in his kingdom looks like. Now, I want to point you to two things that are happening here. First, this is clearly a passage about how Jesus views children. He tells them that children are valuable and central to his kingdom. Children encompass the essence of discipleship. They're an accurate reflection of what following Jesus, what being a disciple is actually like. This is why, for example, children's ministry and children's worship is so important for us here. It's why our children's staff work so hard to create an environment where children from nursery on up are exposed to Jesus, learning and singing about him. In fact, I learned so much from their simple trust and infectious joy. You know, one of the things that I miss most about being in this building were the times where I would get to come read a Bible story to the preschoolers. The boys and the girls who didn't see me often would always come up to me afterwards, grabbing my hand, giving me hugs, giving me high fives, telling me about their day. And some of them had only met me once. But that's what the trust of a child looks like. It's pure. It's innocent. It's joyful. It's playful. Second, however, Jesus takes it a step further. This isn't just a cute story about how Jesus looks at children, though that is true. But the real challenge is understanding why the disciples tried keeping children away from Jesus in the first place. And once we understand that, we begin to realize that we're probably a lot more like the disciples than we realize. The reason is because the disciples could not see the kingdom in what they considered to be insignificant people. Jesus, when he says anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it, he's saying when you look at this child, you're seeing someone you can control. Someone you can manipulate. Someone you can ignore and pass over. But when I see a child, I see the very essence and center of life in my kingdom. When you see a child, you see weakness. I see strength. When you see a child, you see ignorance. I see simplicity. Do you see the difference in perspective that Jesus is correcting just to give you an example, I remember reading years ago about this concept in Judaism called Minyan. Uh, the concept came out of Israel's exile. In that foreign land, while they were being held captive thousands of miles away from their houses, from their backyards, from their schools, and from their temples... They asked themselves the question, how can we sing so far away when we're so far away from home? How can we sing? How can we praise? How can we worship? In other words, is it possible to worship God when we can no longer gather in our temple? And the answer that the rabbis gave was the number called Minyan, 10. They said that if just 10 Jews could gather to pray anywhere, they could be sure that God was there. 
And they appeal to the biblical source where Abram goes up to God pleading for him not to destroy Sodom. And God responds by saying, if there are just ten righteous people in that city, I will not destroy it. Jesus himself started a worldwide movement that continues until this day with just 12 followers. Later, he would go on to say, when two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there. Friends, why are small numbers such a big part of God's story? To remind us that God can be found and in fact is most often found in the places that you and I would never think to look. Small numbers, small people, small places seem to be the norm in the Bible. How often do we expect to see the kingdom or Jesus in people, places, and things as if they were insignificant to Jesus and his kingdom? In our infatuation for the big and the loud, is it possible that we have missed him? Well, not only is it possible to miss God at work in small, seemingly insignificant people and places, but we do it all the time. We can't help but be like the disciples. We love crowds. We love fame and power and notoriety. You know, I was watching The Last Dance um, this past week. I didn't get to watch it when it came out on ESPN uh, a few months ago, so I saw it on Netflix. It's a 10-episode series about Michael Jordan and his time with the Chicago Bulls and their total domination of basketball in the 90s. And so much of the time as I kept watching him evolve and develop as a player win first championship, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. So much of the time I spent thinking, man, what would it have been like to be Michael Jordan during those years? I would have loved the accolades, the stage, having my name chanted, having his money, his shoes. But then as the series goes on, you begin to realize something. That's not me. And that'll never be me. In fact, that will probably never be any of us. And yet we want it. So what's the solution? How can our hearts learn to not only tolerate, but value and pursue the small and seemingly insignificant? How can we turn our hearts from being like the disciples to truly being followers of Jesus who value those that we might consider small and insignificant. Only, friends, by looking at Jesus, our insignificant Savior. Now, what do I mean by that? That he doesn't matter? No, of course not. But that outwardly, at least, his life showed little significance. Born in a stable, insignificant. Born as a baby, being God, insignificant. From a rural country town, Nazareth, insignificant. The son of a young, insecure couple worked 
as a carpenter, a rabbi by trade, insignificant. And yet, it was only because he was willing to live an insignificant life that we can now look forward to a significant eternity. See, how is it, remember, how is it that we came to be saved? To trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. It's not because we were the brightest or the strongest. We didn't, he didn't choose us to be on this team because of what we could contribute. No, friends. We were like little children. Weak, vulnerable, small, insignificant. But Jesus didn't react to us like the disciples reacted to the little children. Jesus didn't shoo us away. In fact, he himself came as a little child. He loved us, cared for us, and eventually gave up everything, including his own life, for us. See, the reason we look for God in strong, famous people and places is because we haven't really believed in our hearts how insignificant we were and we still are, how dependent we are on God for our every day, for our own lives and every breath. But see, when you do, when your heart is gripped by that truth, when your heart trusts Jesus, your heart is free. It's free to live radically ordinary but intentional lives of following Jesus on mission, making disciples wherever you go. It's free to look at your children the way Jesus looks at them as the very center of what his kingdom is all about. You're free to look for God in the small, in the insignificant, in the ordinary. Now what might this mean for you and me? Let me finish by offering uh, two potential implications from this text. First, I want you, I want to encourage you to think proactively about your children's discipleship and make it a priority during this season. How are you letting your children come to Jesus? What are the ways that you are shooing them away from Jesus? Children should feel free to be with us in our smaller gatherings, not like they're a nuisance. This is what it means to be a family on mission. Everything, every birthday party, every stroll in the park, every walk around the neighborhood, every sport league they join is all done with this intentional mindset that says we're a family on mission. We're going to live our ordinary lives, but with intentionality every day, believing that God has sent us to these places and to these people. So how can we, our children included, be a blessing here and now, pointing people to Jesus? Second, you know this. There is not a corner of our city that has been left untouched by this pandemic. Even if not directly infected by COVID-19, all of our rhythms of life have been upended. We feel these changes when we go to the grocery store, the gym, the park, and in our church rhythms here at Christ the King. 
right now, we don't have access to our building. Our worship service has been stripped. Community life is limited. Serving others means serving our next door neighbors. In this time, in this seemingly small and insignificant moment and season, what is your scorecard for success in the kingdom? While we all wish for the days before COVID, we must realize that we are still the church, Jesus' church. His church is defined not by a building or program, but by people living on mission together, by maintaining kingdom rhythms that display a church not only on Sundays, but every day of the week. We were called sent people when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. That means that our sentness doesn't stop just because we can't gather like we would prefer. The church, our church, is all around the city, everywhere you look. Could it be that while we're focused on what we're missing on Sunday mornings, Jesus is pointing us to the kingdom life happening in your children, your marriage, your neighborhood, your workplace, your network. Maybe, like I did with my friend Michael, you will learn to find Jesus during this season in the most unexpected of people and places. Let's pray. Jesus, indeed, you live an extraordinarily simple and vulnerable life. And yet it was a life filled with passion, with joy, with intentionality, and with purpose. As such, you call us to follow in your footsteps, not ignoring or withholding the small, including our children. But instead, seeing how the small and insignificant the everyday, ordinary parts of our lives are actually at the very center of what it means to follow you. Empower us by your spirit to keep our eyes open and our ears alert today and this week so that we might find you and look for you in the small. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.